We're going to speak tonight on a demonstration of the validity of the Scriptures in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Introduction to the resurrection. In Romans 10.9 it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so this is what the Scriptures have to say. It says that if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It never says that we have to believe in Adam and Eve. It never says that we have to believe in the virgin birth. It never says that we have to believe in Satan or in angels, though you might want to because Jesus certainly spoke of all of this as if it were true. But what the Scriptures say is that critical for salvation is believing that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That is critical for salvation. So you can't, I can't just say, oh, well, I've been born in America. You know, Americans are Christians. We're all Christians. You know, I'm good to go. You're good to go. That's not what the Scriptures say. That might be your interpretation. That's fine. Believe whatever you want to believe. But if we want to be consistent with the Scriptures, He puts before us that we have to believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. How could anyone believe in a physical resurrection? How could any thinking man or woman believe in a physical resurrection? Unless God provides sufficient evidence to us, as well as a testimony to our hearts by the Spirit. But you see, this is a critical aspect to believe in the physical resurrection. Very often I will invite... My, my professor colleagues to the Cohen house for lunch. And as soon as we sit down, I say to them, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? <laughs> because they just want to know where they're at. And based on their answer to that, I know where they are. And so then I know how to, how to engage with them. I just want to know. It's, just, it's a fair question. And, and uh, one time a student came up to me and they were, they were talking about a professor who was in the religion department and they said, I, I think he's a Christian, but I'm not sure. I said, oh, I'll find out. So we, we went to the Cohen house together. I sent him an email. We met at the Cohen house. And as soon as we sat down, I asked him, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he said, he said physical resurrection? Um, probably not. I said, okay, tell me your story said he was a Baptist evangelist and then he went to the Harvard School of Divinity and to, to get his PhD and I said, oh, stop right there. I'll bet I know what happened. You went into Harvard believing in the physical resurrection and you came out not believing. And he sheepishly said, yeah, I, I guess that was the beginning of it. Another professor I had lunch with, I asked him the question and he said, physical resurrection? Oh, of course not. It's a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. So, so that gives you somewhat of the diversity of people's beliefs on this sort of thing. But you see what the Scriptures say. That in order to be saved, we have to believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. All right? That's what the Scriptures have to say. What else does it say? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So here's the gospel by which a person is saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So in other words, there is a possibility to believe in vain. So we might believe in something, but it's in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised... Um, and, the, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So he says, I deliver to you as of first importance, the most important thing, Paul says, I'm telling you. This is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the most important thing. You may have your own pet philosophies, But what the Scriptures themselves say is the most important thing is the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That He died for our sins, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day. And it talks about this, that it is possible to believe in vain. Then it goes on, he says, And He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of all... 
most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So then he says, he says he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that Jesus appeared to Peter. Then he says, and then to the twelve, so he appeared to the twelve apostles after them. Remember, at this point, at this point, Judas had hung himself, but Jesus appeared to many people, and one of those extra people was Matthias, who was soon chosen to replace him. That's the twelve he's referring to, because Matthias took his place. That's Cephas and the other eleven, which makes twelve. Then he says he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Most of them are alive. Some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is the code word in the scriptures that means that they were in Christ, they believed, but they passed away. Jesus, remember, he referred to the little girl Tabitha, oh, she's not dead, she's asleep. Lazarus is not dead, he's asleep. That meant that Jesus very much believed that this was a state that was not a permanent state, that there was still life. To people who did not believe on Jesus, he spoke of them as being dead. So these people who had seen him had fallen asleep. They believed on him. But look at what he's doing. He's saying, here is the evidence. Here are the people. Cephas, the twelve in total believed. And then there were 500 people at one time. Hallucinations are not shared. A person may hallucinate. Another person may hallucinate at another time. You don't have two people hallucinating the same thing at the same time. doesn't happen. Let alone 500 So he's building a case here for the evidence. And look what he says. He's giving us the names and who they are. He says, James, he's giving us the names. Check it out. Check it out. Here are the people. The people were still alive, most of them. You don't believe? Ask the people. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Again, if there is no resurrection of the dead, our faith is in vain. Preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. So if a person thinks that they are a Christian and they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, might they fall into that category? You be the judge. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You see what He's building here? If we are going to say that we are Christians, there is a resurrection that is really, really important. And so, do the Scriptures speak of it in this way? And obviously they do. Alright, is it a physical resurrection? In John chapter 20 it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, so the other disciples saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. Thomas happened to not be with them at the moment that Jesus appeared to them. He wasn't with them. Now, this guy Thomas was really influential. Jesus had told them all to go up to the Galilee. That's about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. He told them to go there. But they didn't go because this guy Thomas was not convinced. For eight days he held them there. He says, I'm not going to believe. He, says, he said to the other disciples, he says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus was stabbed in the side, it says, when he was on the cross. He says, I want to put my hand into his side. Unless that happens, I'm not going to believe. Does that sound to you like someone who's trying to believe? Like saying, oh, I've got to believe, I've got to believe. No. I mean, this is a typical skeptic. Unless I stick my finger into the holes in his hands, stick my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. This is actually what a normal human being should say. Somebody says, you know, somebody rose from the dead. Oh, yeah, sure. Let, 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 me, let me touch the guy. Let me poke him in the eye. Let me do something to make sure. <laughs> Thomas was not wanting to believe. After eight days, his, disi- his, his disciples were... 
again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. This peace be to you. This is Shalom Aleichem, the same greeting that's used today in Israel. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Then Thomas, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So Jesus appears to them. He says, Hey, Thomas, here I am. Come here. Put your hand right there in the hole. Now, take your hand and stick it right here in the hole in my side. Come on. Go in deeper. Feel that heart beating around in there? Come on, Thomas. You think Thomas goes, okay. (laughs) Jesus is saying, come on, do it. This is a physical resurrection. Jesus is putting to rest spiritual only. Physical. I want you to touch me, he says. Put your hand into the hole in my side and touch me. It is not merely spoken of in the Scriptures as a spiritual resurrection. It is a physical resurrection of the dead. And I understand. We don't have a lot of data points on this. It's a miracle. It doesn't happen very often. You know, we think it would, be, would have been wonderful to have seen Jesus like that. But Jesus then said, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. We are more blessed if we believe having not seen than having seen and believed. That's what Jesus said. Physical resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, it says, And while they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst, and He said to them, Peace be to you. Again, Shalom Aleichem. Just the normal greeting. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And He said to them, "Why Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So they thought they were seeing a spirit. You think Jesus wanted to leave it there? No. He wanted to make sure that they understood this is physical. He said, see my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. I mean, look at this. Jesus said, come here. They, they, he, he said, touch me. Look at that bicep. Come on. <laughs> touch me. It's me. I've got flesh and bones. Then just to really, he says, you got something to eat. I mean, what do guys do when they get together? Anything here to eat? You got anything here to eat? They knew Jesus loved fish. Jesus was always multiplying fish. Fish and bread. Tuna fish sandwiches. The guy loved it. Give him some fish. If it's really Jesus, he'll love it. he loves fish. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. Why would he do that? You think, well, maybe he was hungry. Maybe he was. But to show them. Have any of you ever seen a spirit eat? Anybody? See? Nobody. You've never seen a spirit eat. Spirits don't eat. That's what he said to them. And so he showed, and then he, he ate in front of them. This is a physical resurrection. Spirits don't eat. He demonstrated this to them. This is what he tried to get across. So here's some background statement. Here's my family. I'm Jim. My wife is Shireen. She's right here. I have four children. I'm Breen, Sabrina, Josiah, and Ben. So there's our four kids. So I'm going to go through some simple logic just so that your minds can be trained. All right? Through this, you're going to be trained. It, it takes one minute to, for me to train your mind properly. All right, Jim, Shireen, Jim, and their children left a campsite and hiked up a mountain. All right, that's statement number one. Upon reaching the mountaintop, Jim saw a dragon in a lake. That's statement number two. When the tourists came back to Houston from the campsite, they told others about the dragon they had seen on the mountaintop. Did Umbreen hike up a mountain? We don't know. No. It says, that's my family, Jim, Shireen, and their children. Maybe it's just Jim, Shireen, Sabrina, and Josiah. We don't know if Umbreen went. 
Right? We don't know. So it's a simple little logical statement. Did the tours go together up the mountain? We don't know. Jim, Shireen, and the children left the campsite and hiked up a mountain. Let me tell you what happens in my family. <laughs> we, we get to the airport. We get to, to security all at the same time. Just take my wife and myself. We get to security at the same time. I get to the gate 20 minutes before she does. Because I just walked to the gate. We left security at the same time, but she goes to Starbucks, she stops here, she stops there. and she. So, just because they left at the same time doesn't mean they went together. Then, you take when we have kids. I mean, especially when they're teenagers, they just disperse. And then shortly before the flight, boom, they converge. This is normal. You go to the store. They all, they just all take off. Then they converge back at the car. So just because they went doesn't mean they went together. This is just normal, normal life. Did Shireen ever see a dragon? We don't know. We have no idea. Uh, it, it says Jim saw a dragon and the tours came back and told others, but maybe it was just Jim and, and Josiah. We don't know. We don't know if Shireen ever saw a dragon. Did Shireen ever tell others about the dragon? We don't know. I mean, some, some of the tours, so two of them did. We don't know if Shireen did. And how many dragons did Jim see while on the mountaintop? Well, he saw a dragon in a lake. Maybe he saw a dragon in a tree, too. It doesn't, we don't know. But you see that there's no discord between any of these statements. All right, we just don't know because it's not specific enough. So what happens is this. People go to read their Bible, and they extract their brain, and they put it over here, and they start reading. This is normal. And then they go, and they, they want to do calculus or, 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 or diffy or something, and they put the brain back in, and they do that. So we're just going to keep our brains and think about these simple statements of logic and then start to go through this. Here are some records of the resurrection that raise questions for people. They'll read the Bible with their brain outside of their head and they will, they will say, this Bible makes no sense. It's all mixed up. It says in Matthew 28.1, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the grave. Okay, so it mentions two women. One named Mary Magdalene and another woman named Mary. There are a ton of Marys in the New Testament. We don't know which one, all right? So two women are mentioned. Matthew 28:10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them. We're telling these things to the apostles. So there's three women named plus others. Could, could have been two could have been 2,000. We don't know. All right? We just don't know. Are, are, is there incongruency between these two? No. Because this mentions two. This happens to mention more. But this doesn't say two women and two women only. This happens all the time when you're telling a story. Do you, when you tell a story about something, do you name every person who was there present at that time? No. Only the people of interest to you for that particular story. This is normal. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So it mentions three women. It doesn't say those were the only women. It mentions three women. How come Salome wasn't mentioned up here? Well, maybe she's one of the others. Again, no incongruency here. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them, we're telling these things to the apostles. So it mentions three. Where's Salome? Well, where, where's Joanna here? This author, at this time in the story, is just mentioning those. There's, again, this doesn't mean that there's inaccuracies. No. This is just normal reporting. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Only one woman is mentioned. Here, multiple women are mentioned. But that's okay. Never said Mary and Mary only. This is normal reporting, as we'll see. 
the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. It says, the angel. It doesn't say multiple angels, but it doesn't say... There could have been a hundred angels, and an angel said this to her. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Again, here they're giving a description of what one of those angels looked like. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothes. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead. He is not here, but he has risen. And it is a very simple thing to put all of these together like we're going to see. This is normal reporting. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they, that means the women, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. So here they're running to report it to the disciples. That's what it says. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they, meaning the women, said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Look at that. They ran and reported to his disciples. They said nothing to anyone, and they were afraid. Uh-oh. We found an error. No. This is all entirely explainable. This, we'll see, brings authenticity and validity to the resurrection account. Here are one of several possible initial resurrection events and areas that corroborates the four gospel accounts. How do you make sense of these four accounts? Well, women set out for the grave to anoint Jesus' body with spices. There are several women, including Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and one or more. So there were five or more women set out to go to the grave. Do they all get there at the same time? No. This is normal. You might all be wanting to go someplace. My wife and I, we go to church. We sit next to each other in church every Sunday. We never go together. We go in two separate cars. We do. Because she goes earlier to cook some food and I go a little bit later. It used to be that I would go earlier and she goes later. And when we had one car, it was big trouble. And, and, and you know, she'd be in the house changing you know, one of the kids' diapers and I'm in the driveway honking the horn. I don't know why she came, up so, came out so upset. What's the problem with that? But when we got two cars, we were much freer. But we, all end, we ended up at the same place, but we didn't leave together. Mary proceeds, Mary proceeds faster than the others and arrives at the grave before the others arrive. Mary sees the stone rolled away, Jesus' body missing. She sees no angel, no Jesus. She immediately turns and runs to report to Peter and John. While Mary is off getting Peter and John, the other women arrive at the tomb. The other women arriving at the tomb see the stone rolled away and angels telling them that Jesus is risen from the dead. Terrified, they flee and become scattered as they run. Now, I ask you, are you going to see some angels and not get terrified? Men standing in dazzling apparel? So they run. This is not Cupid. And they run. Now, you've got a bunch of women running. It's just, just dawning. It's hazy out. There's trees in the way. You think they're all going to hold hands and just run together? No, just run. I mean, there's one this way, one this way, and... Two this way, and they just run. Sometime during the other women's, that's not including Mary, flight, they become divided, and Jesus appears to more than one of them, but not all of them. He comforts those he appears to and tells them to tell the brethren, which they do. The other women who are fleeing and not present at the appearance of Jesus continue to run away and out of fear tell no one about their sightings, i.e. the moved stone and the angels at the tomb. Normal. Jesus appeared to just some of the women that fled. Maybe he was trying to gather them up. And he's like, hey, hey. No, they're going off in different directions. While the other women were in flight from the tomb, John and Peter arrived with Mary 
likely running near them, probably behind John and Peter. Why would Mary be running behind? I just assume that men run faster than women, and I understand that's not a valid assumption today. But I'm just assuming that. And it does say that John got to the tomb first, he was looking in, and then Peter just came and pushed him away and went in. That's what it says. Peter and John see the grave closed, but see no angels, no Jesus. John leaves for home believing, Jesus, uh, and Peter leaves for home in amazement. Mary is left standing at the tomb without John and Peter. Mary then sees and hears angels, then she sees Jesus, first thinking him to be the gardener, until he calls her name. After seeing and hearing and clinging to Jesus, she runs to tell the disciples that she sees him. Mary's seeing of Jesus occurs moments before his appearance to the other woman in number six. This is one of many ways you could put this together and you say, oh, no, 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 come on. This is too confusing. No, this is normal. This is normal. And we will see that now as we go through this. Okay, if the resurrection account had been fabricated, there never would have been an account over four Gospels like this. It never would have been described this way had it been fabricated. Such an account argues against its fabrication. We'll look at this in more detail. They would have waited, if the resurrection account had been fabricated, they would have waited a prudent amount of time, like a hundred plus years, before publishing the account. Such is the form of legends to ensure that all witnesses have died. You never have a legend start when people are still alive. You generally wait hundreds of years before you start a legend. Because you want everyone who could have been there to have died. This started immediately after the resurrection. Boom. The story started propagating immediately after the resurrection. This is not the form of a legend. The early origin of the resurrection argues against its fabrication. They would have published the account far from the venue of its occurrence. You never publish the account right where it happened. You start telling me about the resurrection right there in Jerusalem where it happened? No, do it up in the Galilee or in the diaspora, really far away in Rome started, where nobody's around. This is how legends start. never starts in the city where these folks reside. The resurrection account beginning in Jerusalem argues against its fabrication. Had they been fabricating it, they never would have started this in Jerusalem. They would have been more selective with the choice of witnesses. They would have been much more selective. Remember it says, And he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of all who were who remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, to me. So he's saying, here they are. You know who they are. You know who the twelve are. There's 500 people walking around, most of them still alive, that saw this. Here they are. You never do this with a legend. You don't give people who have eyewitness accounts, not just one making it up. Lots and lots of them. This is not a made-up story. This never would have happened. And remember, hallucinations are not shared. You would not have had 500 people hallucinating at the same time. You don't even have two people hallucinating the same thing at the same time. If it had been fabricated, they would have been more selective with the choice of witnesses. It says in John chapter 19, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one one for fear of the Jews, and asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. These two witnesses are key. This is like saying, get, get uh, 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 Chief Justice Roberts saw it. This is a big deal. Both of these guys are on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is their Supreme Court. It's 70 men plus the high priest make up the Sanhedrin. Here's two of people from the Sanhedrin. And he names them by name. Ask them. John names them by name. If John were making this thing up, he never would have mentioned them by name. This argues strongly against the fabrication. Both were on the Sanhedrin. The account listing the names of witnesses argues against its fabrication. Mary would never have been identified as the first to see Jesus. This is critical. John 20 reports, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had, and he had said these things to her. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared 
he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. First appearance was to Mary. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. Why is Paul, 20 years after the resurrection account, forgetting Mary? He never says he appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter. It says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Why didn't he mention Mary? Because Mary is irrelevant. And the reason she's irrelevant is because in Israel and in Rome, women had no legal standing. Their testimony meant nothing. It was like asking the family dog, is that the guy who robbed the house? You can't trust the testimony of the dog. Women had no legal standing. This is history. Get over it. This is, we're, we're past that, okay? So, women had no legal standing. This is why, this is why it, it, it says he, he first appeared to Mary. And here, when Paul is building a legal argument, a legal argument concerning the resurrection, he never mentions Mary because her testimony is irrelevant. Well, why would the Bible report that Jesus appeared first to Mary? Why would the Bible do that? Because that's the way it happened. Because Jesus is not bound by any of these rules, nor does He care for them. He's going to appear first to Mary. Well, why Mary? Well, it doesn't say, but we can guess. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her, and Jesus said, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. She had seven demons cast out of her. You take a person who has gone through great trials in their life and wandered very, very far and then experienced the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God like Mary did. They love God very, very much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Mary loved God so much. Maybe that's why Jesus appeared first to Mary. But He did appear first to Mary. The account listing Mary as the first witness argues overwhelmingly against this fabrication. Had they been fabricating it, they never would have said, oh, he appeared first to Mary. No way! They would have said, he appeared first to Peter. Peter, he's he's the prime God. Or they all would have argued, no, he appeared first to me. To Mary? This makes no sense. And remember, they would have had to start making this up immediately. It's not like they had a lot of time to think this out. That he appeared first to a woman adds validity to the truth of the Scriptures. There would have been, if the resurrection of Christ had been fabricated, there would have been supernatural displays at the moment, Jesus, uh, the moment of Jesus coming out of the tomb. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And I put in the word fainted. They became like dead men. These were Roman guards that were put there to make sure that nobody broke into that grave and stole the body. The angel comes and he rolls away the stone. The guards, who are the only people present there, are like dead men. And that's all you have. You have nothing Wouldn't it be great if I were making this up? And when Jesus came out, He was just like lightning coming out and the Father was saying, Behold, my beloved Son, and He's twirling around and rising up off the ground. And That's what you would do if you were fabricating the account. You're going to embellish this, embellish it. But there's no report because no one was there. The guards were fainted and no one was there. So it's not reported. What actually happened when Jesus came out? We don't know if he was floating. We don't know if he was walking. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know if he came running out. Ta-da! Here is everybody. We don't know. The account reporting no witnesses to the moment of his leaving the tomb argues against his fabrication. If they were fabricating it, why not fabricate there? If the resurrection account had been fabricated, the religious leaders and the guards would not have had to invent this story to cover up the resurrection. Matthew 28 says, Now, while they were on their way, some guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, 
You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story has been, was widely spread among the Jews. And so, and, and, it, and is to this day. And it actually remains to this day. So the guards say that they, so the guards didn't know what to do. Here they, they wake up, the tomb is open, the body's gone. They know that they're going to die. They had been set there to guard the tomb. If the body is taken away, they lose their life. Typical Roman law for, for, for a soldier. You, you, you mess up on your task, you're dead. So they don't go, he does, they don't go to Pilate, the governor. What they do is they go to the Sanhedrin. They say, we got trouble here. The body's gone. So they make this up. They say, well, just say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. You know the problem with that? If you're asleep, you don't know. If you're asleep, how do you know who stole him away? It makes no sense. That's what happens when you fabricate a story. If asleep, how did they know who took the body? The religious leaders and the guards inventing and propagating such a story argues against the fabrication of the resurrection account. This is what happens when you make up a story and make it up quickly. It makes no sense. You don't know who took the body if you were asleep. And all the guards were asleep. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, the four gospel accounts would have been more duplicative in their testimony of the events. You think, oh, all the accounts should be the same. All right. I had, I, I give exams. There's, a, there's an organic exam going on tonight. And, and um, when, when I teach organic chemistry, those who take the exam, I often require, if, if they can't take the exam in the room, they have to take the exam at the same time. So two students were going off on a class trip for another class. And they needed to, and I said, okay, you're going to take the exam on the same night at the same time that the students in the class are taking it. And so I gave the exam with my own hand, two copies of the exam. I put them in an envelope, gave them to the professor with whom they were going. And I told the professor, send them each to their individual rooms. Let them take the exam from seven to nine. Then they can come back, give you the exams, put them in the envelope, give them back to me. So he put them in the envelope. He brought them back to me. And normally I don't grade the exams. The TAs grade them and, and and the teaching assistants do that. And so... But there were only two. To try to dig them up would be harder than just grading the two. So I sat down and, and I graded one. Then I graded the other. And as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, I just graded this same question that looked like in that one. Now, in organic chemistry, there is one right answer and there are a hundred, a million wrong answers. When the wrong answers are the same, that's a problem. <laughs> Not only were the wrong answers the same, the molecules were tilted at exactly the same angle. Remember, molecules rotate in space. Why would you happen to capture exactly the same orientation, and exactly the same electrons pushing, and the same curved arrows? If you have something that is entirely duplicated, you know it's fabricated. Lawyers know this. We, we have, we have the, the, the former district attorney is, is, is sitting right here. When two people's stories are the same, absolutely the same, what does that say? Chuck, what does that mean? It means they're lying. means they're lying. There you go. There's a district attorney who knows this. Lawyers know this. District attorney knows this. Judges know this. Juries don't know this. When two stories, when two stories are exactly the same, somebody's lying. Somebody's lying. Because they're never the same. Once my, my pastor and I heard a man give a confession to a crime. And then the man recounted his confession and we were in court and my pastor went up to tell his version of the man's confession. And I'm hearing his version, I'm thinking, you old man, you don't even remember how this happened. In essence, it's the same. But it was very different than the way I recalled this. That's normal. Two people see a car accident. You get, in essence, it's the same, but, but uh, uh, they're never identical. If you were going to be fabricating this, what would they do? The four gospel writers would say, okay, would you write? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, we've got to make sure our stories are the same. That they're not the same argues 
that it's not been fabricated. Fabricated. This is normal. Precise overlap in the accounting of events speaks of collusion. The resurrection account reporting the events as a complementary set of records rather than a uh, duplicative set argues against its fabrication. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, the apostles would be shown in a more favorable light and not as being timid and unbelieving. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. If, if they were making this up, I mean, they say, you know, the women came and they told us, and said, of course he's risen from the dead. They only told us a hundred times this would happen. What else would you think? I knew exactly that this would happen. That's what they would have written. The exposed weakness of the apostles argues against its fabrication. This is why the scriptural accounts are always written by the prophets and not by the kings of Israel. If it were written by the kings, it would have been false. It was written by the prophets and not by the kings. Here's a story from the Bible. In Acts 22, it's a a story about a Roman commander. This talks about writing yourself into a good light. This is exactly what I do. I do this. When I'm given an account of what happened, and I'm writing an email, I say this and this, I don't write all the details that make me look bad. And I just, I give them the essence of the story. But I don't make myself look bad. Does, do you ever, you know what I mean? This is the way life is. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. But when they stretched out, when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion, who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went out to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. He put Paul in chains illegally. He thought he was just a non-Roman so you could do this and you could beat on him without any trial. But a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to do this. So he knew he was in trouble. So what did this commander do? He wrote to his superior the account of what happened. Here's his account. Claudius Lysus, to the most excellent governor of Felix. So here's the man's name. Claudius Lysus, Lysus wrote to governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up with them to them with my troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found them to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. There's nothing, you know, particularly in action. In, in essence, it's right. But he's not going to write himself in a bad light. The apostles never would have written themselves in a bad light. This can't be fabricated. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, there would have been omens and curses and, and threats proclaimed against those who sought to investigate. Peter proclaimed, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. He says, we're witnesses. Come and ask us. The same proclamation was made all over the New Testament. Come and ask us. What do most religions do? You question this. Your eyes are going to fall out of your head. Your firstborn is going to die. And you're going to have a miserable life. The Bible says, bring it on. Come with your questions. That's fine. Bring it on. Here's the witnesses. Ask away. God loves investigation. Go ahead and invest this thing. investigate this thing. You don't believe the Scriptures? Investigate it with your brain in. Investigate it. And you will see. But foolishly, people will hardly even read the Bible or just flip through and say, oh, I read the Bible. Makes no sense. You haven't read the Bible. You haven't read the Bible because I know if you read the New Testament twice, you'll become a Christian. That I know. It's an amazing book that the, that the disciples invite inquiry through witness 
and that there are no omens listed for searching out the account argues against the resurrection's fabrication. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, it never would have been preached as an essential element of the new faith. Such a lofty belief is too difficult for a new religious expression. Remember, you have to believe in your heart that God's raised them from the dead. If you just wanted to start a new religion, you would say, Jesus loves the little children. Come unto Him and you'll have a good life. Why set as a parameter? You have to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. If you just wanted to start a a new religion, you never would have said that. The bar is much too high. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. That belief in the resurrection was made a requirement for entry into this new faith, it speaks to the resurrection's authenticity. If the resurrection had been fabricated, the apostles, upon facing death, would have recanted their testimony. They would have recanted their testimony. Many are willing to suffer and die for what they believe to be true. Many of you would die for what you believe to be true concerning Jesus Christ. Many of you would suffer and die for what you believe to be true about this country, and you'd be willing to die for your country. Many of you would. This is normal. This is normal to die for what you believe in. But nobody suffers and dies for what they know to be a lie. We look at this and we believe it to be true and we will die for it. If they knew it to be a lie, they never would have died for it. And remember, they didn't just die by you know, getting shot in the back. It reports, extra-biblical evidence reports how these people died. Two of them were flayed alive. That means you're tied down and they skin you while you're alive. One was boiled in oil. Peter was crucified upside down. These were now... You know, you'd think that they're getting the the oil hot and you'd say, Ah, psych. (laughs) April Fools. Let me show you where the body is and we're cool. They knew this to be true. That's why they're willing to die for this. The apostles were tortured and killed for their testimony of the resurrection and it supports the resurrection's authenticity. All right, so, what do other people say about this? I don't want just anybody's opinion. Look at Will Durant. Will Durant is an excellent historian. Will Durant wrote The Story of Civilization. This is a, like eight volumes. It's huge, which, which means that, you know, you, you, you can download it in like a millisecond. But there was a time, I mean, this was really an impressive account from the dawn of human history right through the middle 1900s. He wrote this. Now you say, well, Will Durant's a Christian. He's not. He even says of himself, I'm still an agnostic with pantheistic overtones. But he's an expert historian. So what does an expert historian, a man who is trained in history, what does he have to say about the gospel accounts? Commenting on the gospels, he says, the contradictions are of minutia, not substance. In essentials, the synoptic gospels agree remarkably well and form a consistent portrait of Christ. In the enthusiasm of its discoveries, the higher criticism has applied to the New Testament tests of authenticity so severe that by them a hundred ancient worthies, for example, Hammurabi, David, Socrates, would fade into legend. He says the New Testament has undergone such analysis and such criticism that anything else, if it had had to go through this, would have faded away. This is what he says. He's a historian. I'm not. I'm a chemist. He's a historian. This is what he says. Then he goes on. Despite the prejudices and theological preconceptions of the evangelists, that means the apostles, they record many instances that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom. Their flight after Jesus' arrest. Peter's denial. The failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee. The references of some auditors to his possible insanity. His early uncertainty as to his mission. His confessions of ignorance as to the future. His moments of bitterness. His despair and cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospel. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, the character, and the teachings of Christ remain reasonably clear 
and constitute the most fascinating feature of the history of Western man. It's from a guy who's not a Christian, but who has spent his life learning how to investigate history and report it. What's the outcome of this? What about us? Since the resurrection is indeed true, how should it change our lives? That we walk out of here and we say, wow, there could be validity here. Okay, that's great. Now, how does it change our lives? Is it enough to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead without it changing our life? If God has come in the flesh and risen from the dead, what does that mean? That's an important message. It should change my life. He has a message for us. And it's not just, oh, we're all Americans and we're all good and we're all Christians. No way. He wants us to know Him. Jesus has opened a door and He wants us to know Him. And this is the message of the Gospel. This is the call that He has for us. The truth of the resurrection is shown. What is it going to do in our lives? Would you mind bowing with me in prayer? Abba Father, I thank you so much that you have shown us time and time again you could not have been more explicit. I thank you, Father, for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for those who are here and skeptical. Father, I pray that they would investigate these things and come to see the truth. Have mercy on them. Father, for those here who are, have become wayward in their hearts, who have gone in a way that they know has caused them to lose their innocence and go astray, Father, call them back, I pray. Let them come back and love you deeply, like Mary Magdalene did. Father, I pray that you would turn those here who are excited about you to take hold all the stronger. And Lord, I commit them to you. Have mercy upon them, I pray, for the glory of Jesus, who has risen from the dead. Amen.